Vladimir Mayakovsky was born in 1893 in Georgia, a southern province of Russia. He was to die 37 years later in Moscow by his own hand when he shot himself in the head. In those 37 years, Mayakovsky lived under the Tsar, was imprisoned in the famed terrible Buderka prison in Moscow at the age of 16, became a poet and then a celebrated poet, embraced the revolution, supported the Bolsheviks and the new emergent Soviet state under Lenin, and was a most controversial figure, greatly loved and admired, and also despised by others during the course of his life. Let's begin with an early poem, a poem called How I Became a Dog. I think in this poem you'll see some of the hallmarks of Mayakovsky's verse. First, the language. The language is what I would call the vernacular. In Mayakovsky's case, it is truly the language of the streets. He speaks as people do in everyday life, and the gestures of his speech, although they're dramatized, and I'll talk about that in a moment, the gestures of his speech are the gestures of the streets of Moscow. Uh, Mayakovsky seems to me one of the great movers forward in the progress, or I like to think of it as progress, of poetry from the time of Wordsworth, who said that poetry must be written in the language of common man. From the time of Wordsworth forward, as poetry has moved away from the aesthetic drawing room style, the, the book style to the language of everyday speech, and everyday speech moves closer and closer as the 20th century goes through its first 50 years. Everyday speech goes closer and closer to the speech that one would hear in the streets from ordinary people. So this poem and all the others we will hear of Mayakovsky's are marked by ordinary language, vernacular language. This poem is also marked by self-dramatization. The poem is called How I Became a Dog, and it is literally that. It's about how the poet is out walking and begins, he feels like, like um, he wants to, he's so filled with anger, he wants to bay at the moon like a dog, and then he begins to realize maybe he's a little bit of a dog. He feels fang, and then people notice he has a tail, and then he grows whiskers, and finally at the end of the poem he goes down on all fours. In addition to the vernacular and the self-dramatization, it's a humorous poem. It's funny, despite its subject, which is more serious than that. But let me not talk too much about the poem. Let me read Vladimir Mayakovsky's How I Became a Dog. It's all too much to bear, gnawed to the bone by bitter anger. I rage, but not like the rest of you. I rage as a dog bays at the barefaced moon. I almost feel like howling at everything that moves. So it must be my nerves. So 
I go out and take a walk, but it isn't any better outside where nobody can make me hold my peace. An old woman bids me good evening. I've got to say something. She's someone I know. I'd like to. I feel like saying, but cannot do so in human fashion. What in hell's name is going on? I'd like to hope it's all a dream. I pinch myself, but it's no good. I'm just the same as ever, the self I am used to. I feel myself, my lips, but protruding between my lips, I feel a fang. I quickly hide my face as if I'm going to blow my nose and rush back home with giant strides carefully edging past the police station when suddenly I hear, Hey, officer! Hey, look! A tail! He's got a tail! I feel it and am rooted to the spot. More blatant than all my canine teeth, I never noticed it as I ran home. The enormous tail of a dog is waving behind my back, protruding from beneath my jacket. So... What can I do now? Someone shouted, summoning a crowd. First a second came, and then a third, and fourth, elbowing the old woman aside. She crossed herself and screamed out, He's a devil! And then, whisk-like whiskers bristled on my face, with the crowd swelling over me, huge and bestially enraged. I went down on all fours and barked at them like this. Row! Ruff! Ruff! Fantastic poem. As I said, it's humorous. It's subject. Surprisingly, the poem was written somewhere around 1914. Surprisingly, the poem is on the same subject as one of the most famous short stories of the 20th century, which was written three years later. Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, in which Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning and finds himself turned into a giant beetle. The transformation of a man into an animal, and that transformation occurring because the emotions that the man feels can only be expressed in, in this bestial form, uh, is a very powerful theme. As I said, it's handled in the language of everyday life, of the streets. Um, what in hell's name is going on? Is one of the lines of Mayakovsky's poem. It's certainly self-dramatized. He, he notices it happening, but he exclaims the poem is filled with uh, exclamation points and questions of himself. Uh, it is, as I said, humorous. And I think it's remarkably accessible. The language and the humor make it accessible, and the dramatization pulls us in. And those things are, are for the most part, characteristics of all Mayakovsky's poetry. It's everyday language, the self-dramatizing, the humor, the accessibility, and also the emotions that are in this poem. He runs a fairly large range of emotions, but this poem begins in rage. I rage, but not like the rest of you. I rage as a dog bays at the barefaced moon. And, and the rage that leads him to, to feel like baying is what really stimulates this transformation into being a dog. 
But that rage is connected to another emotion, which we might call alienation or estrangement. Because he's a dog, he's separate from other people. Because he is a dog, other people look at him as strange. They exclaim about him. They gather in crowds to look at him. Um, and I think that simultaneous sense of speaking everyday language and performing for people, yet at times feeling alien from them, even as he tries to be one with them, is another characteristic of much of Mayakovsky's poetry. Here is another animal poem by Mayakovsky. It's called On Being Kind to Horses. In the poem, he walks down the street and sees a horse slip, fall down, and sees a crowd gather around as, as the crowd gathered around him when he felt like he was a dog. Everybody laughs at the fallen horse except Mayakovsky. This poem is revelatory of the sense of solidarity with the fallen and downtrodden that Mayakovsky feels, which was at the base of his identifying with the revolution and joining in with the Bolsheviks, uh, writing propaganda, drawing posters, being a poet of the revolution. Now, this poem itself is not political, and yet in its feeling for those the others are down upon, to quote Walt Whitman, I think it exhibits a pre-revolutionary sentiment. On being kind to horses, hooves drummed, seeming to say, clip, clop, crop, crap. Drunk with wind, shod in ice, the street slipped, the horse collapsed on its cropper, crowds of gapers gathered, crowds of trousers coming to a crotch on Kuznetsky Street, gathered in a seam, laughter tittered and spluttered. A horse is down! A horse has slipped! snickered the whole Kuznetsky. I, alone, failed to add my voice to its howl. I went up and saw the horse's great eyes, the street upturned and floating the way he saw it. I went up and saw tear after large tear dripping down his muzzle and onto his coat, and a moaning, and animal-like grief burst out in a flood and rustling spread. Horse, don't you cry. Horse, listen. What do you think? Are you worse than them? My child, we are all, to some extent, horses. All of us have in us some of the horse. The horse may have been old and needed no nursing. What I said might have seemed trite. But nevertheless, it lurched to its feet, whinnied and moved off again. It went back to its stable, stood content in its stall, and it thought it was a young colt again, that it was worthwhile living, and it wasn't bad working. As in the last poem, Mayakovsky becomes an animal. Here, not through that kind of transformation, but by feeling himself to be the horse, by seeing the world through the horse's consciousness, the horse's great eyes, the street upturned and floating the way he saw it, the poem tells us. And then Mayakovsky, I think in a low and 
quiet and penetratingly compassionate voice says, Horse, don't you cry. Horse, listen. What do you think? Are you worse than them? My child, we are all to some extent horses. All of us have in us some of the horse. What lovely lyrical lines. Here is a poem where the anger and the compassion are conjoined. The poem is called You, and it is an attack on the bourgeoisie, those who eat and live in heated houses and relate to revolution and war when they read about it in the papers. And these people are contrasted to a soldier who is dead, uh, left without limbs because a grenade has burst beside him. And he wonders in this poem what the dying soldier who comes from the working classes, from the impoverished people of Russia, what he would think if he could see the bourgeois for whom he has laid down his life. And then the poem concludes with a declaration by Mayakovsky of which side the bourgeois or the workers he would rather be on. You, who live just for orgiastic feasts with your bathrooms, johns, and heated loos, have you no shame when in the news you read of medals pinned on heroes' breasts? You untalented multi-million crowd thinking of your next gourmet spread, don't you know that John Doe's dead, left limbless by a stick grenade. What would happen if on his way to slaughter he'd seen you before he burst apart, tucking into cakes or tart, singing the praises of some modish author? Why? Why should we lay down our lives while you straddle sluts in plats du jour? I'd rather work in bars and dives selling fruit juice to pimps and whores. The poem, as I said, is angry, angry at the bourgeois of the world. And because of his anger and because of his feeling for working people, the oppressed, the great number of oppressed people in Russia Mayakovsky not just sympathized with the revolution, but became an active participant in it. And that led to some very astonishing poetry. I'm not sure if I would call this a great poem, but it raises very serious questions that will be raised again in our century by such poets, Bertolt Brecht in Germany or Sonia Sanchez in the United States. The poem will begin with satiric, critical view of bourgeois artists. Uh, it begins with opera singers and moves on to painters. He calls them by the French name Pantre. And then it talks about poets, uh, poets of the movements of Russia, futurists, imaginists, acmeists. Mayakovsky then admonishes these artists to give it up, forget it, and turn to productive work. That admonishment is so over the top. It is so direct and kind of brutal about 
the world of human need, that it's hard in this day not to read it as being ironic. And I don't know, I wonder sometimes whether Mayakovsky meant this straight or whether he didn't have tongue-in-cheek as well when he wrote the final portion of the poem. So this is the height of Communist Party poetry. Vladimir Mayakovsky's Order Number Two to the Army of the Arts. This is for you, you fleshy baritones who since the days of Adam have shaken those dens called theaters with the arias of Romeo and Juliet. This is for you, you painters, grown as robust as horses, the ravening and neighing beauty of Russia skulking in ateliers and, as of old, imposing draconian laws on flowers and bulking bodies. This is for you who put on little fig leaves of mysticism, whose brows are harrowed with wrinkles, you little futurists, imaginists, acneous, entangled in the cobweb of rhymes. This is for you who have exchanged rumpled hair for a slick hairdo, bast shoes for lacquered pumps, you men of the prolet cult who keep patching Pushkin's faded tailcoat. This is, this is for you who dance and pipe on pipes, sell yourselves openly, sin in secret, and picture your future as academicians with outsized rations. I admonish you, I, genius or not, who have forsaken trifles and work in Rasta, I admonish you before they disperse you with rifle butts, give it up, give it up. Forget it. Spit on rhymes and arias and the rosebush and other such mawkishness from the arsenal of the arts. Who's interested now in uh, that wretched soul, how he loved, how he suffered? Good workers. These are the men we need rather than long-haired preachers. Listen. The locomotives groan and a draft blows through crannies and floor. Give us coal from the dawn, metal workers and mechanics for the depot. At each river's outlet, steamers with an aching hole in their side howl through the docks. Give us oil from Baku. While we dawdle and quarrel in search of fundamental answers, all things yell, Give us new forms. There are no fools today to crowd open-mouthed round a maestro and await his pronouncement. Comrades, give us a new form of art, an art that will pull the republic out of the mud. That clearly is not everyone's type of poetry, and yet, on the spectrum, which ranges from the intensely personal to the public, from the creation or exploration of the self to the forging of a society. On that spectrum of how we can use words and the functions poetry can perform, the poem we just heard by Mayakovsky 
is on one end. It helps define the great polar spread between which all palms range. But lest we go too over the top in one direction, let's go back to that humor that I mentioned before it characterizes so much of Mayakovsky's attitude towards things. At the same time as he is bombastic and rhetorical, he's also humorous. We'll look at two poems that are humorous poems. Uh, one is social and, in fact, political, and the other is uh, personal, representing the two sides of Mayakovsky, who is always dealing with himself and often dealing with his society. This first poem is called In Re Conferences, about conferences. It's a poem about modern life, about modern life as it was coming into being, not only in Russia, but all over the world as people again and again uh, went to meetings and the way in which our commitment to all the small stuff of our jobs means that we are not available to those who want or need us. Once again, we'll hear echoes of Kafka. This poem uh, was written about the time that Kafka was writing the trial in which Joseph K. goes, as the narrator does in this poem, from office to office without ever getting adequate response. There are a lot of names of Russian political organizations and, and institutional organizations here as the hosts of all these meetings. The poem involves the poet going for some unknown reason to an office building and making his way up from one floor to the next until he finally comes to the seventh floor and every floor people are unavailable to see him because they're in meetings. Here is in-ray conferences. As soon as the night turns into dawn, each day I see someone going to the sent gen, someone going to the gen com, someone to the com polit, someone to the polit sent, they all disappear into offices. There's a rainstorm of paper shuffling. As soon as you get into the building, half a hundred of the most important employees disappear into conferences. Then I show up and ask, can't they see me? Been here since forever. The comrades, Ivans, Ivaniches, have left for a conference with the People's Commissar of Teetotal Wine. You climb a hundred stairs. Not a nice world. Again. Asks you to come back in an hour or so, in conference, Ray, the purchase of inks for the Gubsent Coop. After an hour, not a clerk, not a secretary appears. Bear. Everyone up to 22 years is at Komsomol Conference. I climb up again, watching the nightfall, to the top floor of the seven-story house. Has Comrade Ivan Ivanich come in? Still in conference with the ABCDEFGHCOM. Enraged, I burst into the conference like an avalanche spewing out savage oaths on the way and see people sitting there in halves. What the hell's going on? Where have their other halves gone? Slaughtered! Murdered! 
Shouting wildly, I run berserk. Go out of my mind, it's such a picture. Then I hear the calmest of clerks point out, they're in two conferences at the very same time. Twenty conferences we have to sit through every day and more. So we're forced to split ourselves in two. Up to the waist is here and the rest over there. Can't sleep for the suspense. Meet the dawn with frenzied longing. Oh, for just one more conference regarding the eradication of all conferences. This next poem is called An Extraordinary Adventure Which Befell Vladimir Mayakovsky in a Summer Cottage. And it's marked uh, Pushkino Akula's Mount. That's his summer home, the cottage he went to every summer for a number of years. The adventure is extraordinary indeed. It reveals yet another dimension of Mayakovsky who had, these are trite words, but in this case they're most apt, he had a truly fertile imagination. In this poem he sees the sun sink every night into the valley below him and he finds himself angry, enraged, he says, that the sun should disappear every day, and so he hollers at the sun. And then, to his great amazement, the sun responds to him. Uh, I don't think I have to explain much in this poem. It is filled with a kind of life and humor and spirit and zest and, and happiness. And again, it's over the top. It's filled with all these things and it bowls us over. So here is one note on the poem. Uh, what he did in the summer cottage was uh, draw posters and make slogans for the telegraph agency. And both the posters and the telegraph agency, uh, which is called Rasta, are mentioned in the poem. Here, then, is an extraordinary adventure which befell Vladimir Mayakovsky in a summer cottage. A hundred and forty suns in one sunset blazed, and summer rolled into July. It was so hot, the heat swam in a haze, and this was in the country. Pushkino, a hillock, had for hump a kula, a large hill, and at the hill's foot a village stood, crooked, with the crust of roofs. Beyond the village gaped a hole, and into that hole, most likely, the sun sank down each time, faithfully and slowly. The next morning, to flood the world anew, the sun would rise, all scarlet. Day after day, this very thing began to rouse in me great anger. And flying into such a rage one day that all things paled with fear, I yelled at the sun point-blank, Get down! Stop crawling into that hellhole! At the sun, I yelled. You shiftless lump! You're caressed by the clouds, while here, winter and summer, I must sit and draw these posters. I yelled at the sun again. Wait now! Listen! Goldbrow, instead of going down, why not come to tea with me? What have I done? I'm finished. Toward me of his own good will, himself, 
spreading his beaming steps, the sun strode across the field. I tried to hide my fear and beat it backwards. His eyes were in the garden now. Then he passed through the garden, his son's mass pressing through the windows, doors and crannies. In he rolled. Drawing a breath, he spoke deep bass. For the first time since creation, I drive the fires back. You called me? Give me tea, poet. Spread out, spread out the jam. Tears gathered in my eyes. The heat was maddening, but pointing to the samovar, I said to him, Well, sit down then, luminary. The devil had prompted my insolence to shout at him, confused. I sat on the edge of a bench I was afraid of worse. But from the sun, a strange radiance streamed, and forgetting all formalities, I sat chatting with the luminary more freely. Of this and that I talked, of how I was swallowed up by the Rasta. But the sun, he says, All right, don't worry. Look at things more simply. And do you think I find it easy to shine? Just try it, if you will. You move along, since move you must. You move and shine your eyes out. We gossiped thus till dark. Uh, till former night, I mean. For what darkness was there up here? We warmed up to each other, and very soon openly displaying friendship, I slapped him on the back. The son responded, you and I, my comrade, are quite a pair. Let's go, my poet. Let's dawn and sing in a gray, tattered world. I shall pour forth my son and you your own in verse. A wall of shadows, a jail of nights fell under the double-barreled suns, a commotion of verse and light. Shine for all your worth, drowsy, and dull, one tired, wanting to stretch out for the night. Suddenly, I shone in all my might, and morning rang its round, always, always to shine, to shine everywhere, to the very deeps of the last days, to shine, and to hell with everything else. That is my motto, and the sun's. Isn't that a great poem? Always to shine, to shine everywhere, to shine to the very deep of the last days and to hell with everything else. That is my motto in the suns. Yes, it's a, a poem about the poet making friends with the sun, imitating the sun, singing, and I quote the poem, in a gray, tattered world, I shall pour forth my sun. I'm going to do now something I really don't like to do, which is to excerpt a poem. In 1914, Mayakovsky wrote one of his best-known poems, a long poem, 25 pages long, called The Cloud in Trousers. And we're going to look at a brief part of the prologue and then half of part one and a chunk of part four. In the prologue to this 
poem, Mayakovsky addresses in his own but dramatized voice um, what he calls softies, the people who live in salons. And he says, come and, and look at me and who I am. And he knows that he's a wild man and they might not want to look. So he says, if you want, I'll switch from being maddened flesh and like the sky, I'll change my tone. If you really want, I'll be irreproachably sweet, not a man, but a cloud in trousers. So the poem takes its title from his attempt to be sweet, to be not physical and present, but ethereal and unthreatening, a cloud in trousers. Then we go to part one, which opens with a kind of suggestion that this must be a dream. He says it's not. In fact, the poem is dreamlike. It is, as we recognize with so much of Mayakovsky, it is rhetorical and even histrionic. Uh, but he responds to those accusations that he's over-dramatized by saying at the beginning, you think this is some malarial dream? It happened, happened in Odessa. I'll come at four, Maria said. Eight, nine, ten. And now the sad December evening turned away from the windows into the horror of the night. Over the next two pages, he waits anxiously for his lover, Maria, who was due at four. It's not arrived at 10. We'll pick up the poem when the hour of midnight strikes. And we'll notice as he goes forward, the changes in tone and register as his moods shift kaleidoscopically back and forth. We'll also notice this very strong sense of creating a stage on which he will perform. That is, the poem creates the stage and then dresses up the actor, and the actor uh, acts out a variety of parts. One of the things that characterizes this poem in particular is the extraordinary exorbitant imagery for example, shortly after we pick up the poem, uh, he says that his nerves are like a patient rising up from a sickbed. At first he moves slowly about and then begins having found that he can stand to dance and other nerves join in with this first nerve. There is such excitement from the dance that the ceiling above collapses. And then other nerves join in more important nerves. I, I think the sense is of, of uh, the ascent. I was going to say the slide, but it's not really downhill. The ascent into hysteria as first one nerve quivers and then another. And, and finally, the nerves take over. But while the nerves do this macabre dance, night clogs. It clogs him 
his eyes feel heavy, and then his lover arrives. It will turn out he's dissatisfied with her because she tells him that she is going to get married. Mayakovsky goes through a number of changes and then comes out with the extraordinarily beautiful lines. I feel my ego is not enough for me. Someone's obstinately trying to get out of me. Let me repeat that. I feel my ego is not enough for me. Someone's obstinately trying to get out of me. A wonderful way of expressing that sense of desire, of wanting more, of wanting to be free to have more. Then he turns to uh, his mother. And then in an example of the imagery, which I find overpowering and remarkable in Mayakovsky, he says, people can smell grilling flesh. Here they come, shining. Not only is he burning, and that will be the imagery for the rest of this poem, not so different from T.S. Eliot's part three of The Wasteland, which concludes with burning and was written at just about the same time or a few years later. Not only does he have this burning, but he turns humorous. As he burns, it turns out that firemen appear in helmets, no time for boots, to try and put out the fire. But of course they can't, and that fire uh, consumes him as we move to the end of the first part of The Cloud in Trousers. So we pick up the poem at midnight. The twelfth hour of night fell like a condemned head from the block. In the window glass, gray raindrops howled, burst into an enormous grimace as if they were gargoyles howling on the facade of Notre Dame. A curse on you! Haven't you had your pound of flesh? Soon my mouth will be torn apart in a scream. I listen quietly. A nerve has sprung as if from a patient in his cot. And now, little by little, at first then more strongly, the nerve begins to beat anxiously and evenly but ever faster until the first nerve and another two flap up and down in frantic dance. The plaster on the lower story collapses from the dance. Nerves, important ones, minor ones, so many of them jerk out feverishly and their feet give way beneath them. And night clogs like silt in the room. My eye cannot get out of the silt. Of a sudden, the doors began to rattle as if the hotel's teeth were beginning to chatter. All of a sudden, you entered as sharply as, here you are, torturing the chamois of your gloves, saying, you know, I'm going to get married. All right, then, get married. See if I care. I'll get by. See how calm I am, like the pulse on a corpse. Do you remember? You said, Jack London, money, love, and passion. 
but all I could see was that you were Mona Lisa who had to be stolen and stolen you were. Once more in love, I'll begin the game again. Throwing the light of fires on the curve of my brow. So what? But homeless squatters sometimes dwell in shells of gutted houses. Are you having me on? If less small change than a beggar has, you own a wealth of emeralds. Remember, Pompeii perished when Vesuvius was teased beyond bearing. Hey, gentlemen, lovers of blasphemy, crimes, and cattle slaughter. The hardest thing to bear you've ever seen was in my face. When I'm absolutely calm, I feel my ego is not enough for me. Someone's obstinately trying to get out of me. Hello? Who's that? Mother? Mother? Your son is wonderfully sick. Mother? He's suffering from fire in the heart. Tell my sisters, Ludmila, Olga, there's nowhere left for him to go. Each word and joke he expels from his volcanic throat like like a naked prostitute is ejected from a burning cat house people can smell grilling flesh here they come shining in helmets no time for boots tell the fire brigade with tenderness they try to cool my burning heart i can cool it off myself I'll pump out tears by the barrel. Who cares if it presses on my ribs? It wants to jump, jump out, jump out. It won't work. My ribs have collapsed. You can't jump out of your heart. On my burning features, from the slash that marks my lips, a charred embrace grew up to flee. Mother, I can't sing. The chapel of my heart's been captured by the choir. The charred significance of words and numbers from my skull. Remember children from a burning house. Thus, the burning arms of the Lusitania lengthened in fear, grasping at the heavens. The fire glow with its hundred eyes burst from its havens to fear-struck people in the quiet of their homes. A last shout, if you can, scream out to the centuries ahead that I burn. William Butler Yeats writes in a late poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion, that in his youth all my circus animals were on show. But in fact, nobody ever put all his circus animals on show, I think, like this. It was from Mayakovsky, whether directly or indirectly, I don't know. It was from Mayakovsky that Sylvia Plath learned how to dramatize her own sufferings. Here, in this poem, the passion he feels, the passion that he cannot let out of him because his lover has not arrived, and when she has arrived, she, it turns out she has someone else. That passion burns him up. It is as if he is trapped in the burning house of his body. Firemen can't put out the fire 
he tries to put it out with his tears. As a building collapses, his rib collapses, he tries to jump from the burning building, but of course, you can't jump out of your heart, as he says. And then what we find are the ashes, the cinders, let me read, of his, the charred significance of words and numbers from my skull. The fire seems to burst and spread among the people around. And in this conflagration, there is the last shout, a shout, if you can, scream out to the centuries ahead that I burn. In this poem, Mayakovsky, and here I quote Yeats, Mayakovsky's circus animals are all on show. I think that the presentation of self in this kind of overly dramatic role, a way of externalizing what is deep within one, is a precursor to the poetry of Sylvia Plath, written half a world away and half a century later. It would seem to be hard to write a poem even that goes even farther than this, but all we have to do is turn to part four of The Cloud in Trousers to find Mayakovsky outdoing himself. The first half has to do with love. The second half is an interrogation of God himself. And I will read that part. This ending of part four will begin with the poet imagining the end of his life. And he comes to God, and not so differently from what we saw in the poem about his encounter with the sun, he whispers in the ear of God, and then he dances with God, showing that kind of familiarity that he had with the sun. And then he offers in an extraordinary passage to pimp for God, to find him girls from the boulevards, to find him prostitutes. The moods shift quite rapidly in this section, as happens fairly often in Mayakovsky's poetry, and he moves from this to an accusation, perhaps as great an accusation as a human being can level against the universe why couldn't you have made a creation of love and satisfied desire, God, since you're all-powerful? Why did you have to create pain? And then he decides maybe God is not so powerful. Maybe God is just a minor God, a kind of godlet. He waves a switchblade at the angels and says, get out of here. I don't need you. Then he says, in a mood shift again, I'm lying, but I'm calm about it. And he looks up in the night sky and he sees the sky as if it were a battlefield full of slaughter. He tries to order heaven around. Then he realizes heaven is death. And finally, he concludes the poem with an extraordinarily lovely image of the universe asleep, asleep to him. Asleep like a dog is asleep the stars shining as fleas 
flitter in the ears of a sleeping dog. So here then is the second part of part four, the last section of The Cloud in Trousers. It begins, as I said, uh, as the poet imagines his death. And when my allotted span dances to its end, its traces will, in a million spots of blood, carpet the long road to my father's mansions. I'll crawl out, dirty from spending nights in ditches, stand side by side with him and whisper in God's ear, Listen, Lord God, aren't you bored with soaking your fattened eyes in the syrup of the clouds? Come on, you know, let's build a swing on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You, who are everywhere, you'll be in every wardrobe, and we'll set the tables with such fine wines that you'll want to go and dance a jig for Surly Peter at the pearly gates. And we can send the Eves all off to settle paradise if you give the orders this very night I'll bring you the finest girls from the boulevards. You want me to? Why don't you want to? Why are you shaking your head, old shaggy beard? Are you furrowing your aged brow? Do you really think that angel who's fawning after you knows what love is all about? I'm an angel, too. At least I used to be. I could stare straight in your eye, holier than thou, a snow-white lamb. But I don't want any longer to give these young chicks vases mold of Sèvres china. Almighty, it was you who thought up pairs of hands, made it so we all have heads. Why couldn't you have worked out some way of kissing, of kissing, of kissing without pain. I used to think that you were almighty godhead. You ain't no more than an ill-taught godlet, pitiful and small. Watch me bend over and take a flick knife from inside my boot. You winged scoundrels, get back to heaven where you belong. Ruffle your feathers in a frightened rage, or I'll open you up for all your stink of frankincense from here to Alaska. Let me go. Don't believe me. I'm lying. I don't know whether it's true, but I can't keep any calmer. Look how they've knocked off the heads of the stars and bloodied the sky with slaughter. Hey, you, heaven, bare your head, remove your hat, I'm coming. It's death. The universe is sleeping with its enormous ear, tick-filled with stars, resting on its paws. What a wonderful line. Almighty, it was you who thought up pairs of hands, made it so we all have heads. Why couldn't you have worked out some way of kissing, of kissing, of kissing without pain? Near the end of his life, Mayakovsky began a longer poem called At the Top of My Voice. I'm going to read four sections from the poem in the first, he tells us what he's doing. He addresses his comrades and says, I myself will expound these times and myself. And he says, I 
am a poet. Propaganda sticks in my teeth. And then he says, among, or he writes, among the saddest lines in all of poetry. But I subdued myself, setting my heel on the throat of my own song. He acknowledges that in the interests of the revolution, in the interests of society and his fellows, he has not just restrained himself, but jackbooted himself. I subdued myself, setting my heel on the throat of my own song. And still, he says, my poetry, my verse will reach you because he tells us I am the poet of revolution. I am the poet of the proletarians. I think his poetry in this passage, when he speaks of the socialist revolution, soars. If it's possible for a poet to take the large, the social, the things where sometimes one's foot is on one's own throat and make it capacious, generous, then Mayakovsky has done so here. And then finally, some lines from the end of the poem where he says he's got nothing from what he's done. He has written for the people and for the sake of art. Professor, take off your bicycle glasses. I myself will expound those times and myself. I, a latrine cleaner and water carrier by the revolution mobilized, drafted, went off to the front from the aristocratic gardens of poetry. Agitprop, that's propaganda. Agitprop sticks in my teeth too. And I'd rather compose romances for you, more profit in, in it and more charm. But I subdued myself, setting my heel on the throat of my own song. My verse will reach you across the peak of ages, over the heads of governments and poets. My verse will reach you not as an arrow in a cupid lyre chase, not as a worn penny reaches a numismatist, not as the light of dead stars reaches you. My verse, by labor, will break the mountain chain of years and will present itself ponderous, crude, tangible, as an aqueduct by slaves of Rome constructed enters into our days. To their very last page, I present to you the planet's proletarian. The enemy of the massed working class is my enemy too, inveterate and of long standing, years of trial, and days of hunger ordered us to march under the red flag. We opened each volume of Marx as we would open the shutters in our own house. But we did not have to read to make up our minds which side to join, which side to fight on. Our dialectics were not learned from Hegel. Let our common monument be socialism, built in battle. Men of posterity examine the flotsam of dictionaries. Out of Lethe will bob up the debris of such words as prostitution, tuberculosis, blockade.
My purse has brought has brought me no rubles to spare. No craftsmen have made mahogany chairs for my house. In all conscience, I need nothing except a freshly laundered shirt. This is, I think, as good as political poetry gets. The enemy of the massed working class is my enemy too, inveterate and of long standing. Years of trial and days of hunger ordered us to march under the red flag. We opened, it's a wonderful image, we opened each volume of Marx as we would open the shutters in our own house. And then he qualifies it, but we did not have to read to make up our minds which side to join, which side to fight on. Our dialectics were not learned from Hegel. Let our common monument be socialism built in battle. Now, at the top of my voice was to have a second part, uh, which was to begin with a very lyrical section. And there are a number of unfinished poems that were to be parts of that. Let me read you the closing lines of the first of those poems in which Mayakovsky says, let me, it's a love poem uh, about giving one's way to passion. Let me discover gray in beard and hair, let the silver of advancing years ring out in peals. I hope and trust that I shall never come to shameful common sense or reason. I think it's fair to say that Mayakovsky never came to shameful common sense or reason. His reason was always of larger things. It was never the common sense. It always went beyond. Sometimes the irrational is imaginative and sometimes it is irrational to the point of craziness. And Mayakovsky straddled that line. But a calm, collected sense is nothing that characterizes his life or his poetry. I'll end with one of these poems, the central lines of which comprised his suicide note that night in which he shot himself. Besides, as they say, the incident is closed. The ship of love has foundered on life's reef. You and I are even. And why should we list our mutual grievances, our hurts, our griefs? That was his suicide note. The poem itself is addressed to a lover. Again, it's a thwarted lover. The ship of love has foundered on life's reef. The ship of love has gone down after hitting a coral reef. There's a stillness to the poem. And yet the Mayakovsky who addressed the sun and slapped him on the shoulder the Mayakovsky who spoke to God and asked if he'd like to find a prostitute, that Mayakovsky rises up and addresses the ages, history, the universe. This is, I think, the wonderfully monstrous ego of Mayakovsky, imaginative, humorous, filled with what he called earlier shining. Here is his last poem. It's already past one. You'll have gone to bed in the night, a silvery river as the Milky Way. I'm not in a hurry, and there's no need to disturb you with the lightning of my cables. Besides, 
as they say the incident is closed the ship of love has foundered on life's reef you and i are even and why should we list our mutual grievances our hurts our griefs see how still the world has grown night has laid the sky under a tribute of stars in such an hour as this one may rise and address the ages history the universe Mayakovsky certainly was a poet who tried and I think often succeeded to address the ages history the universe